I just got a text that my five and six year old Creve Hall Yankees baseball practice was canceled for noon today, which is probably a really good thing with the weather. <laughs> Our little grandson plays, so it's uh, it's fun. A lot of connections in this room with people I go way back with. Probably nobody I go back further with than Jim Glisson. Jim's brother, younger brother Bob, and I were great friends. I guess kindergarten through today but uh his dad and his parents and my parents were great friends his dad's name was everybody called him nitro nitro glisten and uh, <laughs> that's what everybody called him and he had a personality to match i'm telling you so anyway but i'm, I'm happy to, happy to be here so um when paulette asked me to do this she said why i just want you to to tell your story and uh so my story really has a lot to do with football. Um, that's sort of been my life. And then we told Julie's mom um, that I was going to be teaching class, and she said, what in the world does football have to do with the Bible? <laughs> <laughs> what does that have to do with anything? So It's a religion. That's right. <laughs> that's exactly right. So um, let me see if I can get this working a few minutes ago, so let me see if I can. I thought I had it all teed up. But... All right. It went to sleep. <laughs> all right, so... What I, what I thought I would do is just kind of start by giving you a little bit of background, um, and I'll try to get over here out of the way, um, give you a little bit of background on just sort of, the, the first half, let's say, will be non-church related, okay? <laughs> uh, and then we'll draw some things in. But uh, football for me has been a, a family thing. Uh, my dad was an All-American baseball player and first-team All-SEC football player at Georgia Tech back in the day when Bobby Dodd was there. Uh, and he, instead of getting into coaching, uh, Coach Dodd encouraged his players to get into officiating. It's a great way to stay close to the game but have a much better quality of life than moving every year or two or three. So uh, when my dad got in the SEC in the late 60s, uh, half the officials in the SEC were Georgia Tech grads for that reason. So they graduated from, from Tech in Atlanta. They got into the Atlanta High School Association. The guy that was the head of the SEC was also head of the Atlanta High School Association. Ex-players make better officials for the most part, and so that's sort of how all that got started. Uh, this is a picture of me and my brother Greg, who many of you know, and our son Michael at the Auburn Spring Game a few years ago. Michael thought he wanted to get into officiating, and he would have been a great official, but uh, he has decided not to do that. But that was, uh, it was, it was uh, really interesting to watch him the first time in front of 60 or 70,000 people, his eyes got pretty big. But uh, So my brother Greg was in the SEC uh, for many years, and he retired last year. I retired about three years ago. Uh, injuries is what got both of us. Uh, I've had 12 knee surgeries. I've had both of my knees replaced twice. Um, and Greg's problem, he had, he had five knee surgeries, I think. But he ruptured his Achilles twice. And the second time he ruptured it, he just he couldn't come back from it. So just like players, that's what gets officials is your wheels go bad. And so uh, let me kind of run through these pictures here real quick. 
This is our, our daughter Melissa and our first grandchild Jane, and me and Michael at Ole Miss for a, a spring scrimmage indoors. It was, it was rough outside. Melissa and Adam were visiting his grandparents about 30 miles away. And so that was Jane's first. Uh, she crawled all over the field. We put her on the 50-yard line. <laughs> and uh, Hugh Freeze was there then, and uh, who's a great friend, and she crawled all over the field. So um, this is Michael when he was playing, and my beautiful wife. Uh, football's just been a really important part of our life. Michael was a, a good high school player. I got the chance to start coaching at Lipscomb, the middle school, uh, when Michael went to ninth grade. They didn't want a father on, on the staff coaching. But I did get to help on, on Friday nights. And so a lot of times when he, especially his senior year, I would stay here Friday night, leave after his game, drive halfway to wherever I was going if I could, and then uh, get there the next day. But um, this is uh, us at a bowl game. That's Ricky Rooker in the middle, who's from here in Nashville as well. But I think this is Armed Forces Bowl maybe in Dallas. Uh, but uh, again, just very much a family thing. You may recognize this guy on the left, Jason MacArthur. Uh, this is at the Alabama-Mississippi um, State game a few years ago. So Jason is also a SEC football official, as is Jay Brown. Uh, so again, just kind of a family thing. This is, <clears throat> this is an interesting picture here. We could talk about this for a long time. That's my mom and my dad. Uh, this is at the Alamo Bowl in 2004. 2003. Um, my dad was the observer in this game, so he had retired, and this was his last game he ever worked with the SEC. Um, so what you don't see in this picture is my mom fell and broke her ankle two days before we left, and nothing was going to keep her from being at that game. <laughs> so we took her through the airport in a wheelchair all the way to all the way to San Antonio. Um, she also went to the game, by the way. Uh, we got there, and then the, de the day of the game, Emily got sick, got deathly sick, This, uh, who's now the youth minister here. And so we ended up that night after the game at a hospital, and we were two of three English-speaking people in the emergency room. There was a God sent a nurse who was bilingual, who was just phenomenal. Uh, they did a bunch of stuff with her anyway. Um, she was wiped out so coming back we had two wheelchairs going through the airport one for my mom and one for Emily but uh, very much a family thing I don't recognize that guy young guy in the back with the mustache and then that's Cole we started him young uh, that's his officiating um, a, a bib that uh, all of our grandkids have had so um, anyway this is my dad this is if there are any historians in the room, um, this picture is on the front page of the New Orleans Picayune newspaper every year when Auburn plays LSU. This is one of the most, and this is in s several books, um, but this is, uh, we've got some football historians in there. Any guess what play this is that went down in SEC and football history? This is the earthquake play. So when my dad gave the touchdown signal, the noise in the Tiger Stadium at LSU was so loud that it registered on the Richter scale. <laughs> it did. It sure did. And so that's a, a really famous play in, uh, in SEC history. Um, I put this in there because you know people ask me a lot, what, what do you miss about officiating? 
And really what I miss is this, it's the relationships. Um, these are two of my best friends. This was at the Orange Bowl three or four years ago. Uh, Steve Shaw on the left, uh, he and I were on a crew together for 12 or 14 years. He was, uh, was the SEC supervisor of officials for many years. And then Bobby Moreau in the middle, only guy I think in SEC history to be all SEC on offense and defense. He was a quarterback at LSU, and his senior year they moved him to a linebacker, which is unheard of now. And so Bobby was all SEC, but uh, on both sides of the ball. That, that's the part of it that, that really I miss the most is the relationships. And uh, so I put that, put that up there to sort of signify that. These are just a few action shots, I guess you would say, that I – through in there. Um, you know, it was funny, after a game, people that live in that area of the country would start sending you uh, pictures from the newspaper. And then back then, and really up until a few years ago, if you wrote whoever took the picture and <clears throat> wrote them a letter, they would do, do an eight by 10 for you and send it to you. And so um, I think now that everything's digital, that's a little different. That's from the Vandy Georgia Tech game uh, a couple of, two, three years ago. And then the coaches. Um, <laughs> this is Butch Jones, who was always one of our favorites. <laughs> we called him Sergeant Carter. You remember on Gomer <laughs> I can't hear you. <laughs> Flat top. Uh, as a football coach, Butch Jones is about good for is good for yelling. Uh, so I think he took the Arkansas State program in the toilet this year. Uh, it was interesting. So our son, Michael, um, four year, three years ago, uh, he, he, he was a kinesiology major, wanted to get into, get into uh, sports, uh, foot, uh, training and conditioning, uh, strength and conditioning. And so he got an internship at Alabama with the football team and went down there thinking he was going to scrub toilets. And that first meeting he went into, they said, well, you've got the quarterbacks. And so the way that worked is the players, based on their class schedule, they had, had a two-hour workout window. And there were four windows. It was like 8 to 10, 10 to 12, 1 to 3, and 3 to 5, I think. And so because he only had five quarterbacks, he was really one-on-one. And Tua was there then, and also Mac Jones was there then, who he has maintained a relationship with. And Butch Jones had been added to the staff as a consultant. <laughs> And Michael said of all the coaches that were there, Butch Jones was his favorite. So we kind of see a different part of him on Saturday. We see him at their worst. Uh, but Michael really thought a lot of Butch Jones. He, um, like the rest of the world, Michael was terrified of Saban. Uh, whenever he walked in, um, he, uh, everybody, there's Saban coming unglued on me. <laughs> And just to make sure there's no respect for a person, there he is coming unglued on my brother. <laughs> <laughs> so true story, my dad's family's from Birmingham, a lot of Alabama fans. My aunt, who is the biggest Alabama fan I think that ever walked the planet, has those two pictures framed to this day <laughs> in her den, sitting right beside her chair, and she is so proud of those. She's like, the fact that we're in the same frame with Coach Saban, uh, he was he was interesting. Uh, Michael got kind of saw a little bit different side of him when he was there working, and uh, they they he, he he would be with Michael a lot because a lot of times Michael would have the quarterback he was working with with a couple of receivers in the indoor facility, 
And uh, so Saban would come over to be with his quarterbacks. And uh, he, he really, really uh, got developed a pretty high regard for Coach Saban. Uh, he especially enjoyed the week when Belichick was there. They were filming an HBO special. If you haven't seen it, you ought to watch it. It's really good. Uh, but, uh, but to watch them together, he just said they were just like two best friends. I mean, he, he said you could really see sort of a, uh, a personal side of both of them when they were together. Uh, so anyway, um, there's Urban Meyer. Um, that's the Spurrier boys. That's Steve Spurrier Sr. And right over his shoulder is Steve Spurrier Jr. And who coached with his dad for many years. Um, there's Cockadoodle-Loo. <laughs> Only man I've ever known that wore two pair of pants to make himself look bigger. <laughs> he, wore, he literally wore two pair of khaki long khaki pants. So uh, he was a showman. He, um, I don't know what kind of fo football coach he was, but he was a showman. We had them, had the Tennessee game down there. Um, I can't remember the year, but South Carolina was undefeated. They were 9-0, I think, going into this game, so it was a huge game for them. And Tennessee came back. Tennessee won the game. It's sort of the fast forward the tape. But third, about midway through the third quarter when South Carolina was flopping and failing and Tennessee was, was kind of taking it to them, we had a clock malfunction. And so Steve Shaw, who I showed you earlier, was my referee, and he needed to go over and talk to Coach Saban, so he motioned me. He said, I'm not going over there by myself. You're going to go with me. <laughs> Saban was already out about the numbers, you know, flailing his hands and trying to get the fans fired up. And so we got over there to him, and he was moving his mouth real big. Of course, he had those thick glasses, and he was flailing his arms. And in a voice about the tone of what I'm saying right now, he said, are you all going to put about 20 seconds back on the clock? But man, the place was booing us like crazy because they thought, man, he's giving it to them. He's chewing those guys out. And it, was, it was all for show. Uh, so anyway, that, I think that picture right there was at the Florida game. Did you um, give him the 20 seconds? Uh, Did you give him the 20 seconds? I think it was 23 we put back. <laughs> um, people ask me a lot of times, what's the biggest game you've ever worked? Uh, I had the national championship game the year that Southern Cal and Oklahoma played. Um, kind of interesting the way that works. This is the last crew that's ever officiated a national championship game because the SEC has had a team in it every year, every year since then. And it's always a neutral crew. So I, I was, I had, you know, I guess luck you would say I, uh, Tommy Tuberville was on my sideline. You might remember this year, this is the year that Auburn really should have been in the national championship game, but they put Oklahoma in there. And Oklahoma went up 14 nothing, and Southern Cal came back, and the final score was 52 to 14. And uh, as my dad would say, it was a classic till they kicked it off. But uh, anyway, so that's and, and I, I, I will say this: the guy in the middle there is Bobby Gaston. Um, he is the guy that that gave me an opportunity. And so Bobby was a supervisor of officials. He's um, he's 98, I guess. Mm -hmm. yeah. Lives in Atlanta, and he'll. He'll shoot his age in golf again this year. He shot his age in golf every year since he was 73. Um, he's a pretty amazing guy. He's a Georgia Tech guy, uh, and so uh, he was a good bit older than my dad, but um, he took a chance on me, and uh, so, you know, you, you always have those people in life that you're indebted to uh, that, uh, that give you a chance, and so 
interesting story about this game. People have asked many, many times, do you get nervous? And the answer is, you get incredibly nervous. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. Game day is just awful. I loved early kickoffs. I hated night games because <coughs> night games, you just sit around all day and you just, you're just a bundle of nerves. This guy right here is Doug Will. I mean, is Mike Williams. You might know his brother, Doug, who was a quarterback at Grambling and for the Washington Redskins and the first black quarterback ever to win a Super Bowl. They look like twins, but Mike got sick about three days before the game with a throw-up virus. He just couldn't stop throwing up. And so they had an IV in our locker room for him, and they had a doctor there that was kind of assigned to him. And so um, as soon as the game was over with and we got back to the hotel, he stopped throwing up. And uh, come to find out it was nerves, <laughs> anxiety. I mean, there's just a lot of stress that goes with it. And so, um, you know, the... Um, it, you know, we, we, we train and, and, and work toward these games every week, and we want to perform at our best, too. And we're graded, and we'll get into some of that a little bit later. But, um, but anyway, so that's, that's that. But I think the part of, a fit, of, of football, not officiating, that has meant the most to me was the opportunity I had to coach. That was, um, I was coaching middle school at Lipscomb for about 10 years. This is a picture in our little locker room, middle school locker room, but this is before we went out to practice every day. We would pray together. And um, a lot of these guys I established relationships with that last to this day. Um, you know, the old saying is that a coach influences more people in a season than most people influence in a lifetime. And um, it, that part of, of I, was, I was coaching when we first got married, and. That was one of the reasons I got into officiating is that we quickly figured out we couldn't make ends meet doing that. Um, this, is, this is three of the guys that I coached in middle school that ended up being in my covenant group here at, at, at Otter Creek. That's Carson Pierman on the left, Luke Westerman, and Cole Welch on the right. And that was last year, I think that was a state semifinal game. They won the state championship last year. And so... Um, those relationships, that, that's the most rewarding thing I've ever done in officiating was having the opportunity to, to coach and, um, and, and establish those relationships. So um, several questions that I'll sort of proactively answer as it pertains to football, and then we'll try to pull this back together and see how it might relate to the Bible a little bit. Um, people want to know who's the worst coach you ever worked for. Um, that would probably be a toss-up between Gene Stallings, good old Church of Christ boy, except on Saturday, and um, Jack and Cheryl. Those two were cut out of the same mold. They just they just rode you the whole game. They didn't wear headphones. They weren't listening to the other coaches. They just that, that was just kind of that old school. Um, and the other question I get a lot is, what was the best game you ever had? And so, I don't know how many of you have remembered, anybody remember the Bluegrass Miracle game? So, Kentucky was, this is 20 years ago, uh, I think it got ESP and SB, maybe of the decade, but, um, but it was um, Jerry Lorenzen, the big, big, big guy that was quarterback for Kentucky then. Kentucky hadn't beaten a ranked team in like 20-something years. They're up on LSU. All I remember about that game is I had a call early in the second quarter, and they booed us the whole game uh, until until the Bluegrass Miracle happened. But um, Kentucky was ahead, 
And it was late in the fourth quarter. They were playing LSU, and Nick Saban was head coach of the LSU at the time. Um, and so Kentucky had the ball deep in LSU's territory. And instead of letting the clock run all the way down to about three seconds and call a timeout, their quarterback inadvert or didn't should not have, but called a timeout with about 12 or 14 seconds left. And so Taylor Begley, who was a kicker for Kentucky, came in, kicks the field goal. Kentucky's ahead. The place is going nuts. It's the wildest thing I have ever been a part of in my life. They're up on LSU with 12 seconds to go. And let's see if I can pull this up. And then as they say, here is the rest of the story. So I will tell you, I was across the field. I was on the LSU sideline when I saw what we were about to see start happening, where they gave the coach a Gatorade bath. To my left, out of my peripheral vision, I could see the fans starting to storm the field they had already climbed the goalpost, and the goalpost to my left was coming down. I mean, they were they were celebrating, and here is Stylish, lets it fly. Oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> that was the end of the So that was <clears throat> that was the most exciting game I ever worked. <laughs> it's probably the <clears throat> probably the easiest time we've ever had getting out of a stadium <laughs> because everybody was storming the field and nobody was leaving. And man, we got to our van and our police escort, and I mean there was no there was no traffic at all. So, um, but lots of lots of lessons though, and, I, and I'll save a little bit of time at the end for questions if anybody has any questions. But but lots of lessons to be learned. Um, and, and that's a great place to start, right, uh, as far as, you know, what are the life lessons from football? I don't know that I can give you a lot of uh, parallels with officiating in the Bible. Um, you know, the, the, one of the misnomers is that the officials make the rules. That's wrong. Uh, the coaches make the rules. There's a, there's, a, there's a rules committee that's made up exclusively of coaches, both in the, in the college game and the pro game. And 100% of rule changes come from the coaches. Um, we give them input on what we would like to see changed, but but it's it's so we're not, you know, we're not the ones making the rules. We're the ones enforcing the rules. But I think as I look back though, one of the things that really is 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 interesting to me as I look back at at my time is um, you know just just sort of the 
I guess you would say the body language, but what it looks like on the sideline um, <clears throat> when things are beginning to go bad. And um, I think that's in my book where Coach Saban really sets himself apart. I couldn't tell in a game based on how he was acting if he was four touchdowns ahead or four touchdowns behind. You just didn't know. And I officiated him when he was four touchdowns behind. I don't know if you remember, but when he first got to Alabama, they weren't very good. Now, he turned it around pretty quickly. Uh, but <clears throat> his deal is that he, he, they create a game plan, and they stick to that game plan no matter what happens. And um, it really was, it was always interesting to me as one of the things, you know, I, I would see other coaches uh, that would just go crazy be going nuts, a guy like Will Muschamp. You know, I mean, he was so emotional on the sideline. And I think that rubbed off on his kids. I think it confused his kids. But Saban in that moment is always sort of the calm in the midst of chaos. But, but there's a game plan. And no matter what happens, you stick to the game plan. Well, that's a pretty good correlation when it comes to football and faith, is that we've been given a game plan. And it's real easy for us, based on the circumstances around us, the things that are happening around us, to abandon that game plan at times. But I think that's a, I think that's a huge, and I've, I've used that with my, my boys when I coached. Um, and it, you know, especially, I mean, it was very poignant when we lost, but it's also very poignant when we won, that we just, we stuck to the game plan. And if you stick to the game plan and you execute the game plan and you still lose, you hate to lose, but you did what you went to do. It's all about the preparation. Coach Bryant used to say, it's not the will to prepare that sets a team apart, but it's a will to prepare and practice perfectly that sets apart a really good team. And, um, and so, you know, when, I, when I'm with... This group that Julie and I are now a part of, we're in the, just started our seventh decade on the planet. Um, we have a lot of life, that, a lot of life experiences that we've lived through. And um, I think that some of the best advice that we can give the generations coming behind us has to do with, with sticking to the game plan. Um, one of the things I would also say <coughs> is that Things change dramatically. Um, you know, when we when we look at this at this day and age, and we look at the things going on around us. Julie's dad used to have a saying that uh, he said, "I'm just suffering." He would see something on the news, and he would say, "I'm just suffering from TMB." And I said, and some, "You know, if you didn't know, you'd say, what's that?'" And he would say, "Too many birthdays." <laughs> uh, you know, when when he would turn on the news and watch it. Uh, it you know, and I'm the same way now. I mean, it bothers it bothers me what's happening in this world, and I don't care if I'm turning on CNN or Fox or who it is. It bothers me uh, the fact that we can't communicate without yelling and screaming um, just really drives me crazy. And so, but we've seen the world change dramatically, and um, and that's just I, I, in my. 25 years in the SEC, I saw things change dramatically. Uh, one of one, the first part of that change 
going back years ago was Sport Talk Radio. Um, and for those of you that listen to Sport Talk Radio, you might remember that Bob Bell and Bill King had a show here on 1510 WLAC that reached 28 or 30 states on the clear channel at night. Uh, and uh, it, was a, it was a call-in show. And so it reached all the Southeastern Conference states. And um, one night I was coming over from work about 7.30, and I knew Bill King, and I was listening to that, and somebody <laughs> calls in from Athens, Georgia, and his name was Bulldog Bob. That was the first thing that happened is that people could hide behind not having to give their name, which is the same thing we see in social media, right? And so he calls and he says, you know, the, the officiating in the SEC has been worse than it's ever been this year. And uh, he, he said, uh, the problem is that there's a bunch of guys that are in the league that are sons of former officials. Well, that kind of got my attention. <laughs> and he said, the first one is John Gaston in, in uh, Gainesville, Florida. That's Bobby Gaston's son. Well, Bobby Gaston had all girls. That was not his son. And so uh, Bill King corrected that. And he said, he said, another great example of it is Lane Thomas. He lives right there in Nashville. And um, he got in but just because his dad was in the league. Well, at that point, I about ran off of I-65 South <laughs> and into a ditch. Um, and Bill King went on to defend me and explain, you know, told the guy that he knew enough about me to know that I'd come to the Southern Conference and had worked, you know, playoff games and so forth. But, man, that was a sobering experience for me. And then you move to the, you know, this thing right here, where now, instead of... 16 cameras in the stadium, you've got 70,000, right? And so um, they're watching you every move that you make. Um, we, I had a game a few years ago, and one of the mechanics that we have on the goal line is that many times the run, if there's a run up the middle on the goal line, the other wing official and I, we're on the sidelines. And if it's just in a sea of bodies, I can't see where that ball, I can't see if that ball broke the plane. So we come running in, but we have an umpire that's, that's right between the linebackers, and he's got a great view of it. And so if there's a score, what he's supposed to do is he's just supposed to nod his head a couple of times. And I look at the umpire and get that signal from him, and then I'll go, go up with a touchdown. Well, there was this school of thought that the head nod was maybe a little too obvious. So what they wanted the umpire to do is just – next to his body, if, if he scored, just give a thumbs up. That worked pretty good, too. Until the Mississippi State-Alabama game, where Brent Sewell, who was the umpire, in a moment of excitement, when the runner scored and he was trying to give the signal, he goes... <laughs> <laughs> like, we scored! <laughs> he was so excited. And man, that hit that hit social media, and I mean, it, people went crazy with it. They went, I mean, everybody has a conspiracy theory about officials, right? Let me circle back to my, to my original point. Things change. Um, you know, in, in the officiating world, the level of scrutiny we were under changed. I officiated before, I started officiating just before instant replay. In fact, my national championship game in the Orange Bowl was the first game that instant replay was utilized. And I think we had maybe two stoppages in that game, but that was, that was the beginning of it. 
But what came with instant replay was the level of scrutiny that we, we as officials are under, which is one of the things that, for me over time, just took a lot of the fun out of it. Um, you know, the, the, the pay continued to go up, but the level of scrutiny went up. And, and so that was a big thing that changed about the game. Another big thing that changed about the game was the amount of money that coaches make. When I got in my first year, Gene Stallings was in his last year at Alabama. I think he made about $300,000. He was the highest paid coach in the league. And today, Saban makes $11.9 million. I think Kirby makes about $11.4 million. Even your lesser coaches that are just getting hired are making four and five million. And the Pipers clearly understand it with their son-in-law and what he does. That changes things. That changes things. And so therefore, the coaches are under scrutiny to an extent they've never been under before. I mean, think, think about it from a fan's perspective. <clears throat> You've got a guy that's a, that's a welder in Elizabeth in Tennessee, and he makes fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year. Good for him. That's, uh, I mean, that's that's the way most of the world is, right? He sees a guy that's coaching football, which he thinks is very simple, making millions and millions of dollars. His expectation is from day one, this guy's going to be perfect. And so now you've got officials where you're expected when you start. To, as Bobby Gaston told me, this is the only profession in the world where you're expected to start perfect and improve from there. <laughs> <laughs> now the same is expected of coaches. And so this whole dynamic, that, that, changed, that changed a lot during my, te during my tenure. Um, so when I, when I look at that and I sort of contrast it to the world that we live in and our faith and how we respond to it. You know, have, I played at UT Chattanooga um, years ago, and I remember seeing my coach on Saturday afternoon or Saturday night, and that's the worst he was all week. He was at his worst. And I understood that. And I think that's one of the reasons why <clears throat> ex-players make good officials is because they understand the intensity that goes with that. But what, what, I, what I carry away from that is this. No matter what we do in life, there, we still have to have a standard that grounds us that we get back to. And so our perspective as Christians, my perspective should be when I see what I see on the news, instead of it angering me, it's okay for it to anger me sometimes, but I should ha also have compassion. There's not much compassion that goes with football. That's just not part of the game, right? But, but, but in a world of significant change, I think it's up to us as believers to be that constant. And really, that's kind of the way that officials were expected to be in this ever-changing world of college football, professional football, there's one bastion of integrity, and that's the officials. And we, had, we guarded against that in a big way. Uh, SEC has two full-time people on staff, both retired FBI agents. 
I just send my tax returns in every year as an independent contractor. If there was any hint of any impropriety with my money, I wouldn't be brought back the next year as an independent contractor. We had to go intensive background checks every year, intensive, for that very reason. Is there any collaboration with known gamblers or known crime uh, for any of the officials? And, and that's, that's in, in every sport now and at the college level. But as Christians, it's up to us. And, I, you know, how we do it, I mean, you know, the, the, it, it just... Man, we're just in a world that needs Jesus in the worst, worst sort of way. And, and so, again, that calm in the midst of chaos, that being angry when it's time to be angry, but being compassionate when it's time to be compassionate, um, I think is, is, is another sort of takeaway um, for me between the two. Preparation is a big thing. Um, people have asked me a lot of times, Paulette, what time is our done time? About two minutes. Two minutes. Minute. Okay. Okay. People would ask a lot about preparation. That seemed to be a uh, a pretty consistent question, and there was a lot of preparation that went into it. Especially that that ramped up. But we would we would leave the I would leave the game with my iPad loaded with every play from the game, every camera angle. So if I had a game with thirty cameras, I had one hundred and fifty plays, each of them with thirty camera angles that I could go and look at. And that was where they grade, that's what they used to grade the film with. Uh, we would have a call on Monday as a crew to review, review our game on um, Saturday to go over it. We would have a call on Wednesday to do a rules test. We would be at the game site at six o'clock on Friday for our first meeting, which was about two hours. And that's where we sat as a crew and watched the film together to review our game of the previous week. We would start at nine o'clock Saturday morning go about three, three and a half hours to review films of the two teams we had that day, and then just to go through what we called our pregame. And then, after it's all over with, after the game on Saturday, we would come back and meet for an hour to an hour and a half after the game. And we would review every foul that was called in the game and any other, any other play that the SEC office wanted us to evaluate. That was, that was our week. And then guess what? We st it started all over again on the way home on Sunday. Lots of preparation. You look at the teams that prepare and the preparation and the practice and all that goes into that. And, you know, I think that there's a, I think that there's a pretty large correlation there um, between faith and football. Um, we don't just go out every day without being prepared in some way. So the question is, what are we doing to prepare? How much time are we spending in the Word? How much time are we spending in prayer? How much, do we spend any time just giving God a chance to, to talk to us and listen? One of the things I love about Julie, she gets up early every morning, and she, she needs at least 30 minutes alone with her coffee just to listen to God. That's her time to listen. Her time to pray, but also time to listen. I think preparation is, is incredibly important. And there's, there's so many other things that I could go through and talk about um, that I think are, are good comparisons. But, you know, I, I love the idea that football is a sport where hope springs eternal. Every year is a new year. You come back and, and uh, hope springs eternal. 
And you know, I'd like for the same thing to be said about us. That our faith and our belief puts us in a place, at least it should, where hope springs eternal. So, I, that's kind of short and sweet. I could go on for a long time and bore you, but I won't do that. Um, any questions anybody wants to ask? Wayne, did you find it, I'm sure that all officials aren't Did you find it difficult to coach or to represent some, some You know, Carrie, that's, you're right about that. A lot of coaches aren't either. Um, I never found that to be a problem. Um, I, I think officiating, what happens with you as a crew and work with the same guys every week is it's kind of like going to war together on Saturday. You build a bond with the guys that you go to war with every Saturday. And so you're able to, I mean, you know, I was going, you had Republicans and Democrats and independents on a crew, but, you know, that didn't make any difference once you're out there and it's you against 100,000 people. And so, so, and I think there's a lesson to be learned from that too, Kerry, right? I mean, it's, it's, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a really big deal, but it, that never presented a problem. One of the, the one thing, I guess, that, that you would just be startled at is the language that you hear. Um, it, it, it's just unbelievable. Um, and it just did nothing but get worse as the intensity level went up. So, Rob? For years I had Susan Pickett's in the upper, upper deck in Neyland, but I'm just curious what it sounded like now in the field. Yeah, Neyland's loud. It's not as loud as... LSU. LSU at night when those Cajuns have been in the firewater is <laughs> pretty crazy. Um, I would, isn't it, Dennis and Betsy? Yeah, they know firsthand. Uh, it's pretty crazy. Um, I would say that the loudest stadiums, the three loudest stadiums are, well, I guess it's four now that a and in the league, but A&M, LSU, Tennessee, and Florida are the, are the loudest stadiums, but LSU had a little bit of an edge on them. So... Uh, yes, I was. I just wanted your wanted your comment on. I've noticed that you know there's so much that we see about avoiding any reference to God or any religion, and then this player drops in the pro player. I think it was New York Jet dropped dropped and had a heart attack apparently mm -hmm. right on the field, and then all of a sudden this it like all of sports and all of religion merged, mm -hmm. and including that. ESP, uh, Jenny, ESP, Dan Orlovsky. guy on broadcast mm -hmm. prayed for, for them. And I'm just saying, you know, and of course you see these guys that go like this. I think they're praising God when they do that, mm -hmm. not just themselves, when they make a touchdown, when they pat their chest and they hold the finger up toward heaven. But I just wondered, you well, Christianity yeah. in, the, in the sport? For anyone that's a believer, that is your constant when you're at that level because the stress and the pressure, the pressure, I guess, is just beyond what anybody can comprehend. I thought the DeMar Hamlin thing was, when it, when it happened, I, just, I, I was just watching it happen, and I almost never watch Monday Night Football, but our son Michael had come over, we'd had, we had him over for dinner, and we were watching the game. But as you begin to see that unfold, and you see guys on the field praying and, and so forth, uh, it's 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 pretty interesting that in that time of need, in that time of panic, mm -hmm. the first place that the majority of them turned was to their faith. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot more in college football. Even the coaches that are not believers have people on their staff that are Christian influences for the kids. We, we used to call it FCA sponsors or FCA coaches. 
But these are full-time coaches that are there as a spiritual guide to these kids. And so, and they need that because the stress that they're under, um, you know, as, as officials, I mean, we would, we would always pray in our meeting on Friday night, but we always pray for women on the field. I'll tell you a quick story. I had the Florida-Georgia game. I think I had it nine times in my career. And um, so one year I had it, and um, my dear friend, not, uh, Mark Rick, <laughs> decides it would be a great idea after they scored their first touchdown for their team to rush the field. And so, you know, we're down uh, toward the end of the stadium. They score a touchdown. I'm getting the ball in for the extra point. And all of a sudden, there's this sea of players that just engulfs me. And we start throwing flags, and I've never been so mad in all my life. Um, so, so we got in. And so, you know, that just you could completely lose a game with that kind of thing that happens. And so when we got back in at halftime, Brad Freeman, who's now in the NFL, but one of our guys who's a – he goes to church at Oxford Church of Christ in Oxford, Mississippi. Uh, I don't know if you all remember Randy Brewer, but his dad preaches there anyway. Brad said, hey, boys, I think we need to pray again. I'm not sure the one we said before the game took. <laughs> and we did pray, and we had a much better second half. So, yes, sir. Um, how often, and I suspect it's not all that often, have you made a call and either crowd reaction or coach or team reaction, and suddenly you think, wait a minute, I may have called that incorrectly. Uh, what process do you go through uh, isn't there a huge reluctance to admit, hey, I made a mistake, let me pick that flag back up or whatever, or you consult or... Yeah, it, it, that, so that, that all sort of changed with instant replay. I mean, we want to get it right, obviously. We don't want to do anything to negatively impact the outcome of a game. And so when instant replay came along, people would say, what do you think about instant replay? We love it because we want to get it right. Now, I don't love the way it slows the game down. The place where you realize that you've done something and you've really messed up and there's nothing you can do about it is what we call an inadvertent whistle. So you think the play's dead, you blow your whistle, everybody stops, and inevitably, every time that happens, someone's got the ball 20 yards down the field running with nobody close to them for a touchdown. And you just cost a team a touchdown. Or a huge turnover, where it would happen a lot on punts. Our back judge is behind the deepest guy fielding the punt. He sees the ball go in, what he doesn't see is it goes right through the wicket and hits the ground. He thinks the guy's caught it. He's coming up from behind blowing a whistle, and the kicking team has recovered the ball on the 10-yard line, and you have to run the play again. Um, so there are a lot of times when, we, when we, we make mistakes and we know it immediately. I will tell you this. That's one of the, one of the things that I, I don't miss is, and Julie can attest to this, um, you know, it, it just – for me, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, the week after Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the week after a game was excruciating because I was in my mind replaying everything that I missed. And it may have only been three or four things. It may have been one thing. You never work a perfect game. But that, that, was, that was devastating. Um, you know, it's kind of, I kind of got to the point where I heard uh, Tommy Tuberville. Y'all know Paulette's relationship with Tommy. Tommy was probably my favorite coach. We, we got in the league the same year. He got the job at Ole Miss, was my rookie season. And we've remained close. My favorite story about him is he had just gotten the job at Cincinnati. I had Cincinnati in a bowl game. He was there but not coaching. And we had my mom at the game. My brother and I both had the game. We were standing out, brought my mom down the field to make a picture with me and Greg. And he walked up behind my mom and put his arm around her. And he said, Miss Thomas, my name is Tommy Tuberville. 
and I may be the only guy in the world that's yelled at your boys more than you have. <laughs> and my mom fell in love with him till the day she died. She thought Tommy, T Tommy Tuberville was the greatest thing, and he, he's a very special guy. But I say all this to say, I heard Tommy say one time, and he may not even remember saying this, but he said, when it gets to the point to where winning is a relief and there's no excitement or ecstasy tied to it, then you know it's time to do something else. And that's kind of the way I got at the end of my career is that you just, you just eviscerate yourself over mistakes and it just, it, it stays with you, so. So Tommy gave up football for to be a U.S. Senator. U.S. Senator, <laughs> as if that's not, yeah. as if that's not more of, even more of a challenge, so. Yeah. All right. All right. Thank you so much.